Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 4th of May, as we record. We have moved seamlessly from reporting season into trading update season. Across the Atlantic, meanwhile, banks continue to topple, but over here, things are somewhat less alarming, which makes for a nice change, all of which gives us a chance to tackle a range of topics on today's show. We are looking at full-year figures from FTSE 250 manufacturer Morgan Advanced Materials in our Result of the Week segment. This is also the time of the year for AGMs, so we'll be discussing private investor attendance at annual general meetings and how that's changing, for better or for worse. And we are also going to look at UK companies to play the energy transition, touching on one or two surprising names along the way. Joining me to discuss all of this are over the line, Mark Robinson. Hi, Mark. Uh, good afternoon, Dan. In the studio, we have our personal finance writer, Val Cipriani. Hi, Val. Hello, Dan. And Jennifer Johnson. Hi, Jen. Hi, Dan. So we are going to start with Morgan Advanced Materials, a storied manufacturer, of course, known for most of its life as Morgan Crucible. Full-year figures for 2022 were out at the end of last week. Uh, the company had previously guided for profit to be ahead of analyst expectations. However, a cyber attack in January put paid to that. All in all, though, Mark, these figures look solid. Yes, yes. Um, I think it was uh, most of the press described it as sort of re- reassuring. If you look at the guidance for the full year, uh, we were looking at sort of adjusted trading profits are unchanged. Uh, and that's, uh, although earnings could uh, suffer due to higher net finance charges, and there was a incident, a cyber attack earlier on. We haven't got a great many details, and the company hasn't released that many details about it. But that could uh, weigh on earnings. But by and large, it was a you know a good set of results. There was only one part of the business, sales and bearings, that didn't see an increase in adjusted uh, in, in the adjusted trading margins. But the uh, the most Impressive performance was down to the technical ceramics unit, which saw a 300 basis point increase on that basis and also uh, higher volumes. And the company says this is partly due to uh, the benefits of the restructuring that was conducted in 2020. We shouldn't forget the traditional parts, the other traditional parts of the business as well. The the molten metal systems uh, unit did very well as well. They both grew at about 15 0.8% through the year. And plus, there was, there was some pretty good news on semiconductors, as I think. Yeah. Well, I'm also not sure what this fairy noise is that seems to keep uh, appearing. Fairy noise? There's a little uh, <laughs> little little twinkle in the, uh, in the audio, which I don't know if our listeners will hear. But uh, uh, anyway, you know, add some magic to the show. Anyway, semiconductors, <laughs> yes. You uh, you mentioned those, and, and it's not one of the company's official segments, but they do break out separate set of you know drivers or end customers really and the, the semiconductors yeah really is where the bulk of the the growth has been coming from on a on a nominal level at least that is i think 37 percent year on year organic change in semiconductor revenue that is part of the faster growing segments in its business as opposed to the core markets but it really sort of suggests that that you know this is a, an area where the company has been investing and where some of that investment is perhaps paying off 
Yeah, now, I mean, that accounts for, overall, it accounts for about 8% of uh, the group total, and they do classify it as an emerging part of the business. Certainly, recent results suggest this is going to be, you know, one for the future as well, along with their uh, traditional the traditional parts of the business. I, I, I was looking it up, actually, and it, it is linked to two main areas. And the, the materials they produce are, are used during the silicon chip fabrication process, and using materials like graphite and, and, and ceramic-based components, you know, all very high-tech stuff. And there are specialists in silicon carbide semiconductor material too. So it's a real growth part of the business and very much part of the new economy. I think you mentioned as well that there, we could be seeing something of a cyclical slowdown in, in that uh, in that industry, and I think that's been fairly well documented now. I mean, there's even some speculation that we're going to uh, sort of a crashing automotive uh, or automotive prices falling uh, steadily through the year as increased supply comes onto the market. But you know, it's 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 obviously um, a really promising part of the business. Management said on the the earnings call, you know, they do see that kind of growth as being durable, despite these concerns about a cyclical slowdown in semiconductors generally that might be perhaps because they're focusing on the capital rather than the consumer cycle so that you know more insulated from some of those short-term trends but these semiconductors in terms of the company's actual segments they feed into both technical ceramics and electrical carbon and also another thing to note here really is that this is a, a high margin business you know one of the higher margin uh, segments electrical carbon I think operating margin there is about 21% this year, which is notably several percentage points higher than other divisions. So that growth could really be ultimately helping margins as well across the business. And it feeds into the diversification narrative as well, because even the traditional parts of the business that used as part of high temperature industrial processing, I mean, that's sold across numerous industries, you know, petrochemicals, uh, glass, cement, in the aerospace and automotive sectors. So that that's actually a, a, an interesting, a bit of insulation for investors, I guess you could uh, describe it as. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and looking looking ahead, the final thing on, on semis, I suppose, CapEx has been increasing. They have been investing in this part of the business, which, again, as I said, seems to be paying off. But they're continuing to do that. At the same time, they've raised the dividend a little bit. They've reduced the dividend cover, which has given them the wiggle room to do that. And likely still looking at M&A opportunities as well. So I suppose the question is, are, are all these things going to be achievable at the same time? Or you know, which areas look most sensible in the 12, 18 months ahead? Well, I don't think finances are strained. I mean, they've seen a significant reduction in their, their pension deficit, which was good news as well. But even with that, uh, I think net debt as a proportion of cash profits is just over a multiple of one, which is well inside the covenants. And presumably that gives them uh, enough firepower if they do go on the M&A front. Although, as you say, you know, a lot of this uh, capital is finding its way into sort of internal expenditures as well. Yeah. Some of this might also, of course, depend on general economic circumstances. I think management, again, on the earnings call say, you know, they don't actually have too much forward visibility in terms of where they sit in the supply chain. That said, you know, so far this year, it's only the thermal ceramics division in Europe, which has seen any kind of a slowdown. But uh, but it might be a case where, you know, something happens rather quickly. But I, 
I didn't look at the, you know, the, you would imagine that there would be um, sort of a wider uh, correlation to industrial markets. But as I uh, mentioned before, given the breadth of uh, their industrial offering, I mean, that is a, a plus point for investors. It, it, it's, sort of, it's another element of the business, which is essentially reassuring. Yeah, that breadth does give you a kind of good overview of industrial trends in general, you know, just by looking at the result. And I think you've maybe compared those or contrasted those with uh, another company which we feature in the magazine this week, Johnson Matty. Yes, yes. I mean, this is an, a narrative which has been unfolding over the last couple of years, really, mainly because they've been uh, hiving uh, portions of the business off that they see a, well, not necessarily non-core, but in the case of the battery materials business, they, they sold that off to EV Metals Group. This is a this is Johnson Matty, we should say, rather than Morgan, if I didn't make that clear. Sorry, Mark, carry on. Yeah, so it's it's a case really of them uh, hiving off parts of the business, not necessarily because they seem see, see them as non-core, but because uh, by the group's own admission, they, they said they were sort of behind the curve in certain areas, you know, battery materials being one of them, which was disappointing. The, the, the shares tanked when that news came out as well. And I think they've just actually sold off the diagnostic services division over to private equity. So I'm getting, again, that's another area which they didn't see much future promise. They've been exposed for a while now because of, uh, you know, obviously they're, uh, I think, I think the largest supplier of uh, catalytic technologies into the automotive sector. But, the, you know, it also applies to chemicals and energy too. But of course, with the transition over to electric motoring, that provides something of you know a, a structural risk going forward. So they have invested in uh, hydrogen technologies as well. But it, it seems that they're struggling to sort of refigure their uh, their business model as uh, technologies change. But you know, but given they've been they've been trading now in one form or another for two hundred years, so I wouldn't necessarily bet against them uh, doing this successfully. Yeah, perhaps conflicting, uh, contrasting points in both these companies' evolutions. Morgan certainly seems to know where it's going. Uh, on the Morgan valuation, you know, still some opportunity there, or is it quite finely balanced at the moment? I would say it's quite finely balanced, only because at this stage, we're not quite sure the the, the full impact of the, the cyber attack. I mean, as I say, the, 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 the company itself has, has been sort of quite cagey on this front for, for obvious reasons as well. But then again, you know, the asking price is only just under 12 times uh, forecast earnings, you know, which which is reasonable, especially when you're given, you know, a forward dividend yield of about 4.2%. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's it would be a, a viable addition to your, your portfolio as well, bearing in mind that its fortunes will tend to wax and wane with, uh, with wider industry too. But um, yeah, I think it would be a, a pretty worthwhile addition to anyone's portfolio. Well, Morgan has just reported full-year results, but a lot of companies have been doing so over recent weeks. And that means it is AGM season as well. Uh, Val, you're going to discuss this with us now because there are some, some quirks and some uh, issues to, to tease out here following, of course, you know, the pandemic, everything moved online. Now we're back in a situation where some people perhaps want to attend, private investors that is, want to attend the AGMs in person as they uh, once did. Some are happy to stay online, but finding that a bit frustrating in some cases too. There's still a lot of issues here in short for companies to sort out in terms of how they deal with private investors at this time of year. 
Yeah, yeah. I think it's it looks like companies still haven't quite made like their minds on how they want to deal with this, and so that creates some some problems in some cases. One of the one of the issues is that companies, you know, they're they're holding meetings both online and in person, and when they do do it online, it's quite hard to for them to communicate with private investors on how this is going to work. Um, because basically, if you're a private investor, you've got a nominee account on a platform and it's not communicated to you very clearly when the AGM is happening, how it's working. So you really need to want to attend it in general, even when it's in person. And platforms obviously have been working on this quite a bit, but there is a lot to do before we can say that, you know, it's a straightforward process. So what happens is that if the meeting is held online, you are basically going to have to go to the notice of AGM put out by the company itself, and that will tell you how everything works and how you can dial in. And I think some investors who are not perhaps as familiar with the process or who were expecting the meeting to be in person might have found that quite quite difficult because communication on that is in general not not as great as it could be. And so there has been some campaigning on this. There's a campaign called Share Your Voice campaign, which was launched by MNS together with a few groups in the sector, including ShareSoc, which is a non-for-profit that represents the interests of private investors. And basically the campaign, you know, is very much looking at it from the point of view of let's have more digital, not let's have less. But it pushes for a couple of things. And perhaps the key one is better communication between companies and retail investors. So that involves that involves platforms, so you know, getting them to communicate better. And it also involves allowing emails for shareholder communication. Because right now, if you're a company and you want to kind of like communicate with your shareholders, you do not have their email address unless they volunteered it. And in any case, you need to send them letters via post, which is expensive. And so companies are not as keen to do it as they might be to send out emails. And then the second thing that the campaign is asking for is for digital and hybrid AGMs to be recognized by law. Because at the moment, companies still do do it, but if they do want to do it, they need to amend their articles of association, which is not a very straightforward process. And then they still need to have at least two shareholders present and declare a sort of place of meeting. It's not super straightforward. And the campaign wants to make this easier and, you know, definitely having AGM online, you know, there are some pros to that because it means that more people can attend without having to travel, without it being very expensive and all of that. Equally, there are probably some some pros from the company's point of view insofar as it's easier, arguably, or maybe not arguably, to, you know, to ignore the questions you don't want to uh, have to answer when everything's taking place virtually. Yeah, yeah, which I think is what um, investors who do like to attend in person are complaining about, um, is that, you know, I think some companies, not necessarily all of them, but they've done virtual-only AGMs and you have to submit the questions in advance and management is just going to read them out and answer them. Uh, So, you know, you lose that ability to kind of like put your hand up and have a sort of fairly lively discussion with the people in the room. Um, So, you know, it it might be more engagement, but there is, I guess, a question of the quality of that engagement. Yeah, it's always easier to answer a question when it's been posed in advance rather than when it's a 
uh, thrown at you, which, you know, for, for better or for worse, it might give a better answer in some cases, but it also might give them a chance to uh, obfuscate, shall we say. Some readers have been speaking to us about physical attendance this year and, you know, how it seems in some cases an afterthought for private investors. I think now that there is this virtual option, some companies have been assuming that they don't need to do anything in person which, you know, then when people turn up, you know, doesn't create the best the best situation, shall we say. Yeah, 100%. And I think there are quite a few companies that are doing hybrid meetings, so you can choose whether you want to turn up or whether you want to dial in. Uh, but there have been some companies that have just asked private investors not, not to show up at all and just go fully virtual. I mean, I think it's fair to say that you know, as as we move on and more and more of us get comfortable with kind of like online meetings in every other aspect of our lives, there will be less people who will want to turn up in person. But equally, it also doesn't mean that we're quite there yet. I think there are quite a few investors who do still very much want to engage in person and show up. And it seems fair that they should be given the opportunity to do so. And it should be done in a way that, you know, is well organized and well thought out for them as well, basically. Yeah. Mark, what are your thoughts on AGM season, AGM attendance? Well, I, I think uh, certainly 250, uh, 250 companies and AIM companies would do well to take note of this because what we did find uh, during the pandemic is as well is that uh, retail investors have an outside influence on share prices because so many institutional deals now are, are conducted off market. So that's worth uh, considering. I think this this you know, feeds into the overall arguments to do with the the rights of retail shareholders. I mean, there's a long-running debate over whether, you know, they should uh, split out sort of individual voting rights from pooled funds. And there's also uh, been criticism in recent years about uh, the erosion of uh, preemption rights as well, which is another issue. As I say, all of this is all of this is linked to a, a wider a debate about uh, retail investors. And of course, uh, you know, the IC is very much on their side. Absolutely. On that, we're all agreed, I think. Well, one AGM uh, in the past couple of weeks that has attracted some attention, as it tends to do, was that of BP, because in part of its changing focus or perceived change in focus in terms of the energy transition. The profits it's made over the past 18 months have, have turned heads somewhat, internally and externally. So there were a couple of votes there which weren't carried, but very much about trying to get those transition plans back to where they said they would be a couple of years ago. And the energy transition itself is our cover story this week, written by Jennifer Johnson. I mean, that is really encapsulates the the context, Jen, of the past 18 months, insofar as we obviously have had Russia invade Ukraine and all the resultant fallout in terms of energy policy and energy prices has given a short-term boost, or certainly a boost, to the oil majors and related companies. At the same time, though, it's encouraged governments to really refocus on their transition plans governments, if not companies, this is, so that energy security can be assured, so that, you know, we don't get ourselves into this situation again. So in short, you know, those opportunities are very much still there for investors. Yeah, and the energy transition uh, is no less necessary than it was before we saw the oil price rebound in the wake of the, the war in Ukraine. Global energy-related CO2 emissions reached a new high last year, despite all of this corporate and political rhetoric around reducing them. Uh, so greenhouse gas emissions may not be growing as fast as they were in the past, but they're not stalling or 
yet falling. So we still need to deploy green energy at scale around the world, even if the oil majors are reducing their own ambitions in the field of renewables in the short term. And the piece, as I say, looks, as I said at the top, looks at, you know, UK companies involved in this shift. And to me, it seems they can split into two, maybe even three groups of, you know, on the one hand, you've got the kind of high growth early stage companies, many of which, uh, not least in the UK, have come a cropper in the past 18 months uh, in a higher interest rate environment, environment where funding is harder to come by and profitability is more important. I'm thinking of, you know, ITM Power as the obvious listed example, uh, British Vault perhaps as an unlisted example. There are companies like that which we can come on to as well, but there are also companies which investors might not consider to be transition players quite so much you know more they see them more as not unreasonably stable dividend players but they will have a big role to play in the transition as well yeah so these are utility companies um chiefly you've got stocks like national grid is is the one that i highlight in the piece which aren't working directly in renewable energy but they do have this key role to play so in national grid's case it has to figure out how to connect all of these new renewable energy sources, wind farms, solar panels, electric vehicles into the grid. So these utilities which distribute energy to end customers kind of also fall vaguely under the uh, you know energy transition umbrella, depending upon their attitudes towards sourcing clean energy for consumers. And as you mentioned, with National Grid, it's arguably not any kind of a growth play in normal economic times, but the returns, the steady returns it promises at the moment look attractive given the the general macro chaos. Yeah, and on that note, it was interesting. I think some analysts have highlighted it as, I mean, as you say, you know, it's a classic staple of many people's portfolios for, you know, the regulated asset base, the reliability of the dividends, uh, notwithstanding, you know, a few wobbles in recent years operationally. But some people have actually, some analysts have actually been suggesting that, you know, there is real growth to be had now at National Grid, in part because of the amount of uh, connections that need to be made to the grid, but also in terms of perhaps the increased wiggle room it might get from regulators who are conscious of the need to, you know, scale up our, our capabilities in this space, things like that. I mean, there is a growth story there now. Yeah, absolutely. So the growth angle on it is really that National Grid has the ability to invest to meet the challenges of our newly electrified world. Its balance sheet is robust enough to invest somewhere around 20 billion more in capex than currently projected in the coming years without posing a risk to its credit rating. So it's in this somewhat enviable position of admittedly having a lot of work to do, but having the firepower to do it. So it's got the grid to operate and people have to pay for their energy. So it's truly a a defensive stock in that sense. And that's kind of a stark contrast to other utilities, such as the water companies, which have a lot of work to do in terms of upgrading infrastructure and are being scrutinised by politicians and regulators for their role in the ongoing sewage scandal in this country. So, yeah, National Grid is a company with a lot to do the ability to do it, and also, uh, you know, it's it's got these really kind of they're very stable customer base. So it's yeah, it it looks uh, less like a kind of boring bond proxy and more exciting to investors these days for sure. Yeah, uh, Mark, I'll just bring you in here on National Grid. I don't know if you have thoughts about the company's future, its prospects in this context. 
Um, well, it's difficult to know, really, only because um, you know, the, the transition itself has got such a, a political dimension. I don't think we're fully aware yet of the potential uh, costs going forward because, uh, you know, in the past you could say the National Grid had sunk costs, but if it's increasing its sort of connectivity, that's going to demand, you know, significant capex uh, on their part as well. Um, and I, I just tend to think that, that uh, markets are becoming somewhat distorted in, in this area as, as well because we, we can't be sure what level of subsidies that we're, we're actually going to need going forward for the transition. And given the, the intermittent nature of renewable powers at uh, power at this stage, we, we can't be sure what drain that will have on, on energy companies in the wider field uh, at the moment. I've, I, I'm of the view anyway, if, if it's successful at all, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a rather uh, uh, chaotic transition. And for that reason alone, I, th I think investors would be well advised to uh, be a little bit circumspect going forward. I guess that's potentially the advantage of uh, some of these more stable plays as well, which which do have other aspects of the business to fall back on. I mean, you mentioned subsidies there. I mean, that is a big part of this story, Jen, as well. When we've seen, we've talked about it a lot on this show. Everyone's talked about it. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US providing big incentives. Europe looking to do something similar. The UK, you know, trying to get some ducks in a row as well. I mean, to me, all of that at the very least does suggest, if not for National Grid, that it does suggest more money is going to be thrown at this uh, situation, albeit perhaps, as Mark said, in a, in a slightly haphazard, chaotic way. Yeah, so for investors who are concerned about the chaotic potential nature of the energy transition, uh, there are a number of renewable infrastructure investment trusts, which at the moment, um, analysts seem to think the market's overly downbeat on them, mostly because the market seems to fear the impact of falling power prices. So it's this kind of quirk of the UK energy system that electricity prices are tied to gas prices, which have fallen, obviously, after the heights they hit during the winter in the early phase of the war in Ukraine. Uh, so the market's concerned at the moment that this will translate into falling income for the trusts. But this isn't necessarily the case because of things like subsidies and power purchase agreements. So analysts think dividend yields across the renewable infrastructure Structure sector will come in at a fairly respectable 6 to 7% this year. And that's because of this steady income from subsidies and power purchase agreements, these long term um, electricity supply contracts. So there are places where you can find stability in the energy transition. And yes, a lot of it does have to do with the will of policymakers and regulators to drive this forward, um, as well as the willingness of the big oil and gas companies to, to really genuinely throw their weight behind this. But I think that the general movement is towards this electrified world, even if there will undoubtedly be a few obstacles along the way, as Mark mentioned, one of them being, um, you know, where are we going to store all this intermittent power that gets produced by renewables? I think there are uh, a number of ways that that companies are looking to address this at the moment. Um, battery farms are one of them. There are actually a couple of uh, renewable infrastructure trusts that are focused on the battery storage market. So it is something that's evolving. It's not mature yet, but I think the direction of travel is still very much clear. Yeah, the, these renewable trusts, as you say, I mean, they fell to discounts last year, partly off the back of rising interest rates, uh, not least after the mini budget. The windfall tax as well was a concern. And they haven't really recovered massively, which is another topic we've touched on in recent weeks, uh, you know, with falling power prices now, perhaps the latest concern. But 
but as you say, you know, a lot of these the revenues aren't based on market prices. They're based on you know the contracts for difference they they sign, which, which give them both a floor and a ceiling on the price, but does give them the stability to pay out these decent dividend yields as well. So that there's definitely an option for for investors there. Uh, I suppose all of this really comes together with National Grid and with these trusts and the, the concept of bringing things online. It, you know, we've seen a lot of talk over the last year about delays in connecting to the grid, you know, some of these stories about there simply being no capacity and whether you're, you know, a uh, renewable energy supplier or whether you're someone trying to build houses, I think, in the west of London was a piece from about six months ago, suggesting there's just not grid capacity to do that. So that's going to be an increasing concern in future and probably an example of the increasing chaos as the years go ahead of, of trying to bring on all this new capacity at once. When investment remains relatively limited. Yeah, and I guess that's the kind of argument for investment, isn't it? Is that um, there is this need, it's a huge unmet need. And yeah, it's whether um, it really does come down, a lot of it comes down to whether you can get these new assets onto the grid, and they'll have to get on there somehow. And again, it's it's about what kind of, there's not going to be this very steady, easy, even transition from fossil fuel power to renewables as we've seen you know no one was anticipating uh this kind of jump up in the oil price and these kind of results that we've seen from bp and shell recently um equally no one's really probably accurately anticipating what hurdles lie ahead so it's very much a live situation and that's something that investors in the sector are obviously going to have to be mindful of. So, you know, if you're someone who does want, as I'm sure a lot of people do, want kind of exposure to the energy transition in their portfolios, it is worth looking into, you know, the likes of National Grid, but also these infrastructure investment trusts. Some of them, as I said, are enabling things like um, battery energy storage and also worth looking into what their agreements with the government and um, companies are for sort of power purchase. What kind of subsidies are they exposed to? Because it's going to vary. And so the success inevitably of any of these companies uh, is is dependent on the regulatory regime and which can change very quickly, as we've seen. I still think that very much that the, you know, the transition is inevitable, as are the kind of speed bumps along the way. So it's just something you have to keep a close eye on. Definitely, you know, you can't stick a, a renewable stock of any kind in your portfolio and just sort of sit and, and wait for it to, you know, continue to accrue value. You've got to um got to be a little bit engaged with the issues at hand. But I think that's exciting for people who who want to invest in this sector. Yeah. Well, as I say, this is the cover story this week. So have a look at that. And there's a lot more detail in there on all of these companies and more. But that does bring us to the end of today's show. We have unfortunately run out of time, but thank you to Mark, to Val and to Jen, and thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Market show. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.